This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's time for our crack strategy panel. And today there's proof that a week can be a very long time in politics. Since last Tuesday, there was a cabinet shuffle at Queen's Park. The widely panned long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, is out. And Rod Phillips, the former finance minister who was forced to resign over that trip to St. Bart's is taking the job. At the federal level, travel restrictions have been eased for fully vaccinated Canadians coming home. And there is that increasingly strange story involving two fired Chinese scientists at our highest security lab. The head of our public health agency, a civil servant, has been censured by Parliament for refusing to hand over unredacted documents on the matter. So what do you think? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, Chief Executive of Variety Village and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to National Public Relations. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Okay, let's begin with John. So clearly, the Ford government is uh, gearing up for the election with this shuffle. How do you see it? Well, the long-awaited shuffle that uh, that we've talked about a couple of times on the program over the last number of months finally happened, and I think. Uh, the timing was right. <clears throat> I think the uh, the uh, the shuffle itself, I thought, was uh, was very smart and, and obviously a uh, an election battle ready kind of cabinet that'll take uh, the premier and, and this government into into the election next year. <clears throat> I thought a couple of key um, uh, uh, obviously uh, selections with with Rod Phillips coming back. Um, I thought that was a smart move. It was you know Rod is just too talented of a of a guy to have outside, obviously he had to pay the price for, for his ill-advised uh, uh, holiday trip that he took back in December. Um, but having him come back in long-term care is, is good for a number of, of reasons. One is, um, you know, I think Marilee Fullerton, you know, was just, was just embattled. And, and I know that CARP and other organizations wanted her to, to resign outright. But I thought that, that, you know, the fact that he moved her into another portfolio and put Rod in there shows how serious the premier is to make sure that long-term care is fixed. Obviously, it's going to be an, an issue that that this government's going to want to have uh, resolved and, and have some issues dealt with more more uh, appropriately before the next election. And having Rod in there was smart. And it's one of those portfolios, Libby, that and, and Bob knows this. Long-term care usually gets you know tied into the Ministry of Health. So that usually it's a it's, you know one minister deals with Ministry of Health and long-term care. Some governments split it up, but. I'm glad to see that you know he's putting in somebody as serious as Rod uh, Phillips in there because obviously it's one of those portfolios that I think from now on will always garner um, you know a seasoned uh, minister uh, to 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 run that file because before you you always get it as a junior ministry as an associate ministry but not anymore I think given the the challenges that we faced you know I think that's going to be changed from now on and having Rod there was good and also he brought in a lot of uh, good talented ministries ministers from from the GTA which is an important battleground for uh, for the premier in the next election uh so he's brought in Rod Phillips uh, I mean I think they have a big challenge uh what is Phillips have to do so that the conservatives won't wear the terrible devastation and I think the key is you know even not so much the first wave no one saw that coming but you know uh during this time last summer everybody knew another wave was coming in Quebec they did or tried to do a few things to mitigate here not so much yeah, look, uh, I think it is the, the government's weakest file. I, I think she was a terrible minister of long-term care. 
Uh, by the way, she was a terrible minister of colleges and universities before that, Marilee Fullerton, that she continues in, in uh, cabinet is breathtaking, in my opinion. She should have been shown the door. But uh, look, Rod Phillips is smart. He's competent. He's media savvy. The key thing for him will be getting, um, uh, getting support from finance and getting support from the premier's office to do the things that need to be done. Everyone, uh, I think, agrees that this isn't just a problem of this government. It's gone on for 15, 20, 25 years um, that, we've, that it's been uh, somewhat neglected. So I think there's an opportunity here by putting in a senior person who is you know, competent with a good track record um, to really make a difference in long-term care. So that's great. In terms of the cabinet shuffle, I thought, uh, I thought it was actually smart in that the government was looking very rural, uh, kind of very old Ontario, and I think uh, they managed to be much more reflective of Ontario. Uh, Getting elected in Ontario, all uh, roads lead to the 905, and they beefed themselves up there, bringing in three or four people, so I think that was smart. Um, Where I thought it was strange, if I could say it is, you do cabinet shuffles to clean up the mess that you have. Basically, you know, I don't care which party is in power, and when you don't do any changes in education, which has been a real, uh, you know, uh, a fire point for this government, that's kind of odd. And it leaves poor Stephen Lecce in that in in that job. And and uh, keeping Marilee Fullerton in cabinet was just insane, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, so I would I would describe the the shuffle as smart and strange, both at the same time. <laughs> okay, Bob, Bob. Before we move on to Karen, I mean the the opposition is is trying to, uh, you know, capitalize on the fact that Phillips had to resign. They're trying to, they're bringing up uh, fundraisers. They're trying to make him look corrupt. Is that going to work at all, do you think? I don't think so. I, you know, he's, I think he, he's well regarded and he, everyone believes that he's a competent minister and he just made a bad decision. So he was punished off to the sidelines and he paid his penance and now he's back. And so I think that um, the big issue for the government is not going to be defending Rob Phillips. The big issue for the government now is still trying to figure out what they're all about. And, you know, Doug Ford was just was just kind of getting his footing before the pandemic hit. And then he had initially a good response to the pandemic. I think there's some questions about whether um, his, his ongoing handling of the pandemic and there's a lot of problem files that he has. One long-term care, one education. Um, you know, those they, the economic recovery of a certain segment of the economy is going to be difficult. And so he's got a lot of challenges ahead. And there's still, I think, that what he needs to overcome is, is that he, he seems to, you know, whipsaw from one issue to another without actually having a real clear message about what his government is all about. And so I think that with this cabinet shuffle, there is a, an opportunity to reset. And I think that that reset is as important as as the, the people he put in place. Uh, Karen, uh, what concrete things do you think they have to get done in long-term care uh, to, to get that monkey off their back? Well, they have to, first and foremost, stop with the amateur hour, right? Like basic, basic, basic things. Like when they say that they're going to renew the standards for long-term care construction, and they say specifically there's going to be air conditioning, and then the air conditioning is excluded from those plans, like that, that's just silliness. Like that, that's just stuff that just it, it cannot happen. Because if anyone's going to take the government seriously about their commitment to fix long-term care, the basics have to be sorted out. There needs to be a staffing plan. There needs to be a way of ensuring that these facilities get built on time and on budget and actually are up to standard. There needs to be concrete action taking for those outdated facilities where most of the the worst deaths occurred because they had three and four people in a room, and so. People need to, stakeholders need to see those changes quickly and competently in order to begin to rebuild the trust. And there has to be some dialogue taking place because I, I don't think um, there, is, there is no leeway on this file. And whoever is going to manage it, and, and Rob has been the one, Rob Phillips is the one in charge, he has just got to manage this with an iron fist and there is no room for misstep. Yeah, I mean, Marilee Fullerton couldn't get anything done there. And, no. and she actually deferred to, you know, 
the people who were doing nothing there. Uh, John, th- this is like a little curious aside question. It, that cabinet shuffle actually uh, makes a sense to me, a lot of it. Like, why was it done on this uh, Friday afternoon thing? Usually that's when you hide stuff. Well, I, I think the timing of it was, you know, it was, was based on a number of things. One, um, you know, you wanted to wait. Generally, most governments or most, most premiers want to wait till there's a bit of a break uh, when they do shuffle the uh, cabinet because they want to ensure that the new cabinet ministers have some time to be able to get briefed on the files and, and get ready so that, you know, one of the cha- one, some of the challenges when, when you've seen cabinet shuffles happen during a session is that the new minister, uh, you know, he or she will get up in the, in the, in the House or the legislature and, and not really know much of the files. But, but this is an opportunity for them to be able to sort of learn and, and get caught up over the course of the next number of months. So when the legislature comes back, it's done. Whether or not it's a Friday or a Monday, I think that's always, uh, that's always leaves to imagination. Usually, you know, usually it, the, the things you want to hide are a Friday of a long weekend. Uh, are the ones that, especially in the summer, are the ones that you want to sort of hide. But I think the fact it was on a Friday didn't make it a material difference. Uh, I thought the fact that it was before, in the summer or before when the House was recessed, I think, is more to the point. Uh, the only thing I'd say, too, maybe with respect to Rod is, and, and Karen's point is quite valid with respect to, you know, making sure that somebody's in there with with an iron fist. And, and Bob mentioned that, that, that the minister is going to have to deal with finance. The good thing about Rod is he was the former finance minister. So if there's anybody that knows our financial situation and knows the bureaucrats within the finance ministry and, and knows the ins and outs and, on how, uh, and how to, you know, make sure that the money that's committed by government is in fact given to, uh, to long-term care. Uh, Rod is the right guy to do that because of his experience within the ministry. So, you know, I think from that perspective, that's another added bonus having Rod there, notwithstanding some of the other issues that, that both uh, Rod and, and Karen said, or that uh, Bob and Karen said, but, but no, I, I think the, the, the shuffle was was perfectly well timed, uh, and and I think we'll uh, we'll see the the new ministers get up to speed for the next legislature when it comes in. John, John did he leave Fullerton in there to save face or what? Because uh, the stakeholders in her new ministry are already complaining. Yeah, you know what? I think that's a bit of a head scratcher in in some cases. Uh, you know why why she was left in? I think that you know there is um, some competence with with respect to, to Mary in, in in some ways. I you know I, I do find that you know a lot of people were expecting her to be out of cabinet, so that was a bit of a, a surprise in some cases. But you know, look, she she is. Uh, um, you know, notwithstanding some of her failings in, in the ministry, but she is a competent person and, and a former a former health official. So somebody who I think will will take charge and, and, and I think has a lot of motivation to redeem herself in this new portfolio. So I think she'll do well, just given the fact that she's got a year between now and the election to show that, you know, what happened in the past, you know, was 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 some, you know, ill-advised mistakes, but but hopefully she'll redeem herself in this new portfolio. Hmm. We'll see. Bob, some of the other moves in this shuffle, the Premier apparently got rid of some people, mostly rural people, uh, partly, you know, just to uh, make things more palatable demographically, but also people who challenged his strategy in the lockdown, people who questioned lockdown. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's uh, not the way you should govern in a parliamentary democracy. Um, If you take a look at some of the successful governments in Ontario in the last 30 years, there are usually very strong people around the table. If you take a look at uh, Bill Davis's government, you had Roy McMurtry, uh, you know, a whole variety of other senior people who were uh, who who were good. David Peterson had, you know, Bob Nixon and Sean Connery Elston. Mike Harris had three or four very senior people. You want people who are going to challenge you and who are going to ask questions to make sure that you get to the right decision. They're not doing that in this case, and I think that will come back to bite them in the you-know-where at some point or other. So I think that that is uh, uh, dangerous. I feel, though, he he did move five ministers out. A couple of them had been there for a long, long period of time, had served as far back as the as the Harris government, so I, I think he was probably right in doing what he did, uh, taking a look at uh, his resources and uh, and and making the government more reflective and more uh, appropriate for the Ontario of today. So I don't uh, 
I don't uh, I don't fault them for that. So out of uh, the people who are out, I'll read the names, John Yakubowski, Jeff Urich, Laurie Scott, Bill Walker, and er- Ernie Hardiman. Is, is anyone there that you think should have been there as, uh, you know, to speak truth to power? Uh, uh, Jeff Urich was, uh, I think, a good uh, minister. Laurie Scott was certainly a competent person uh, and uh, did a good job. I think in the case of both Ernie Hardiman and John Yakubowski, they've been there a long period of time. And they've had a, a good run, if I could put it that way. I don't think there was anybody questioning their competence, but I think there does come a time in, in government where you do have to shake things up and allow some other people some opportunities. And I'm not, I wasn't familiar with the, with the fifth guy that, that well, so I can't comment on him. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. And uh, I, I think they probably did what they needed to do to kind of rejuvenate the government and have it uh, focused for the uh, for the coming election. Uh, Karen, uh, and, and this harks back to your experience as a city councillor. So the municipal affairs minister, Steve Clark, is apparently uh, the only pandemic strategy defender, uh, a dissenter, who, who survived. Now, he's come under a lot of fire. There's controversy over these MZOs, ministerial zoning orders, and a perception or, or a narrative that the Ford government is, uh, is doing things to help their developer friends. Uh, where is that going to go? Yeah, I think that this, this could be another tricky file, um, because there is, um, once the pandemic recedes even further into the distance. People are going to, again, again focus on some of the issues that, uh, that this have been percolating in this government. And one of them has been the exertion of provincial authority in municipal planning. And the fellow, this, I, don't, I don't know him very well, but certainly what I've seen is that he, Clark is a very determined individual and not particularly sensitive to the needs of a municipality. Uh, more really driven by what he believes to be the right thing and understands his powers and understands how to use them. So, you know, I, I think the fact that the Ford government didn't, isn't probably going to take much of a hit on the redrawing of the uh, boundaries in Toronto, the ward boundaries in Toronto during the election. I think they're at greater risk on this one. And, and I think that they, um, the way that they have approached it pre pandemic, they may want to reconsider whether that approach is going to work post pandemic because, um, it's not, it's, it, it, if there is a perception that Ford is in the pocket of the developers, I think that that will be very problematic, particularly in the GTA. Okay, before we uh, move on to federal politics, I'm going to take a call from Pat in Toronto. And Pat, you want to defend Marilee Fullerton. I want to defend Marilee Fullerton because she's a person with significant education. I don't think many realize that it's the deputy ministers and the staff that run the government and that's important, but also there's no there was no money, so you can't you can't do things if you don't have money. So, well, she she couldn't make anything happen in that ministry. Well, and I don't think that's unusual. I mean, things don't happen that quickly, and and we still haven't heard anything as to where the money's going to come from. And I go back to what Wynn did was to try and get cpp increase because so many people go into, into long-term care and all of a sudden don't have any money um so but i'll leave you with one thought because i i am against mr ford with regard to the environment and the mzo why don't we put john tory as the premier there's a man who has totally <laughs> he, he tried to get stuff. that job uh, it didn't go so well <laughs> well it, i take i take him as the premier any day okay well you know what i i think that that after all the back and forth i think he he found a job that has a good fit for him <laughs> thanks pat everybody's laughing with, with that one uh moving right along to uh the federal level, this censure of Ian Stewart, the head of the public health agency, this, this, uh, all these questions around these two Chinese scientists. What, what do you make of that, John? Well, it's uh, again in the in the category of bizarre, right? It, it's one of those things where I just can't understand that 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 you know P Hack and, and the head of it would would sort of get to a situation where he's get he gets summoned. 
to the House of Commons and get censured. And 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 there's still yet to be, you know, he was supposed to come there with some sort of documents, didn't show up, and now there's an opportunity for for the legis for Parliament to uh, to go back and uh, uh, and order him and, and potentially even incarcerate him. Like it just it, it, what it does though, Libby, it just kind of makes people think. Well, what are they hiding? And this mm-hmm. is a, a general challenge that this government has had with respect to the we, uh, you know, and, and, and prorogue in the House when, when they wanted more information and then, you know, obfuscating and, and delaying sort of documents being sent and then sending on documents that were 98% redacted. And all of this stuff speaks to a narrative that this government just is, is hiding things more than they're trying to explain things. And this is yet another one. And it's also fueled by the fact that you're hearing all this stuff in the U.S. now where President Biden is all of a sudden saying, now, well, maybe we should investigate what's happening in Wuhan and what happened in the lab and whether or not it was, you know, it was man-made or if it was, uh, if it was leaked or, or all that kind of stuff. You know, that was something that President Trump was saying that was at one point a conspiracy theory. But now that President Biden is in and he's saying, well, yeah, we should investigate it. And then, of course, you've got this issue where, you know, the, the two, the two uh, uh, scientists from uh, from the lab here are, are now were fired and they were fired because there was something going on with the Wuhan virus lab. It, it just adds more uh, fuel to the fire. And it, I think this is one of those things that people will, you know, there's a lot of things that are inside baseball and, and Canadians just don't pay attention. This is one because it, it, it's linked to the pandemic that I think is going to have some sort of a profound uh, effect on Canadians and it could damage this government. And, you know, um, Bob, Patty Haidu is one of, she says that, that it had nothing to do with the pandemic. Um, I think she's, she's one of the ministers who could be for the high jump. Uh, I don't think she is considered to be very strong. What do you think? I, I don't think her performance has been uh, exceptional. I, I, I think that's fair. I, again, this is uh, the word of the day for me is strange. This is another strange. <laughs> uh, this is another strange one. Look, it strikes me on seeing this and having worked there before that there's clearly a national security issue here. And if there's a national security issue uh, here, the government should say so, and the government should have the appropriate official appear before the national security. Uh, committee of the House of Commons. They're all privy councillors. You could do so in private, um, and you know there could be uh, there could be uh, a discussion um, to satisfy the opposition's concerns about this. You know, I, I would normally say this is grandstanding by the opposition. I'm not going to say that. You, you, if you don't provide them a route to get information, then people have got to go to extremes sometimes to get uh, information. And that appears to be what's going on here. So I'm not sure why the government hasn't followed those processes, because they, they're there and they make sense. Uh, and instead have, you know, created this situation where, you know, a poor uh, official is brought before the bar of the House. Well, and literally, I mean, there's some pageantry involved. I mean, it's literally a bar, and he's got a censure uh, read out to him. And uh, as John pointed out, you know, they they could incarcerate him, even though that hasn't happened it's for 110 good. years. Uh, you know, Karen, bizarre, right? <laughs> you know, very bizarre. And and you know, and again, one of the the troubling aspects for me as an individual is that this government continues to act like it's a majority government, and it is not. And it, it cannot hold the opposition in, con- in contempt because they govern really at the pleasure of one of those parties, allowing them to, to continue to govern, govern. And, you know, when to John's point, like, you know, with the we, they weren't forthcoming. Now they've um, suspended all the, the, the discussion about the military panel, so there's no decision being made on, on the power of the ombudsman. So there's another file that's, that's, again, not completed, and then we have this issue with the bomb. Either, to John's point, either this is earth-shattering for our nation, or this is just completely mishandled. And it, I don't know which one it is, but I'm starting to get nervous that it's the former, and that this is, this is actually serious business that could implicate our nation in a way that we don't, we don't even understand. And, wow. I mean, and if, if that's the case, then, you know, that's a that's a big problem, and the government's going to have to start communicating some narrative around that because ultimately it's going to come out. It always comes out at the end. Um, Karen, while we're still with you, um, the Anime Paul saga mm-hmm. of last week, 
um, again, bizarre and, uh, you know, what they call in the military friendly fire. Uh, she's come fighting back and she has accused uh, other people of racism and sexism in their dealing with her, people in her own party. I would add anti-Semitism to that. Um, but I guess that was part of the source of contention. How do you see that? And, and you know, can the Green Party survive uh, this? I mean, they, they only had three MPs, now two. And what's going to happen to them? Well, it is a bit strange that a party would implode itself and in this manner. <laughs> Um, given that usually it's conservatives when that happens, correct, correct. <laughs> usually the conservatives are doing it. So, you know, again, it, it, uh, the the Palestinian Israeli issue is was not central to the Green Party. <laughs> yeah, not, no kidding, right? So, why they would blow themselves up on an issue that's not even really par- part of their core being is is kind of a mystery to me. <laughs> and and also just the fact that um, I mean, I I do think it does speak to the challenges of trying to keep a party together when the core of those MPs are their activism, right, and their independence and their um, strong opinions, and they're not mainstream because if they were mainstream, they probably would have found a home in one of the other more established parties. So she's got she's got her challenges for sure. But, you know, I, I think that all of what she said may be true, but I, I'm not sure calling out the members of the party and, you know, the people that decide her fate was maybe the best strategy for mending fences that clearly need to be mended if she's going to lead this this movement into the next election, which is rapidly approaching. Uh, Bob, um, uh, we're uh, sort of starting to wrap things up. So, uh, Anami, Paul, and anything else you want to leave us with? Another strange one. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, look, uh, I think... Um, I think she's under pressure from an old guard within the Green Party who doesn't uh, haven't quite accepted new leadership uh, yet. I think she was tough and she said some of the things she needed to, but her kind of attack on the prime minister was weird. Yeah, uh, I agree. And you know, I think there's a number of things that she needs to do to uh, be a better uh, a better political leader. But you know, I don't recall any white men in their first year of being a leader in the last thirty years in this country being dictated to by a party executive uh, before an election has even happened. So you know, I think it does smack a little bit of sexism and racism, and good for her for calling it out. Okay, uh, John, what would you like to leave us with? I'm giving you the last word. Well, look, I, just on the anime Paul uh, situation, I, I I totally agree with with. Bob and Karen on that is strange. I thought the conservatives were good at infighting, but I think the Greens have now taken it to a whole new level uh, <laughs> of, of dysfunctionality, which uh, which is which is in itself a, 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 an accomplishment. Um, but look, I, I just I, the, the numbers are going great as far as vaccines. That's positive news. That the second the second doses are uh, are increasing, which again is good. And I just hope for uh, for a summer where we're going to be a little bit more uh, freer to uh, to enjoy ourselves as the weather gets better. Okay. Uh, thank you so much to our crack strategy panel, Bob Richardson, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. We'll talk again soon. Thank Thanks. You. Thanks. Thanks, Lily. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to try to get a little more clarity on those relaxed travel restrictions and what may be coming next when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As expected yesterday, the government lifted quarantine requirements for fully vaccinated Canadian travelers returning home. As of July 5th, uh, they instead will have to upload proof of vaccination to the Arrive Can app, and they'll have to have a negative test no more than 72 hours before they land. They'll also have to take another test on arrival, but they'll only have to quarantine if they test positive. So what do you think of that? Numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 
40. There's still a lot of questions around this. And I am joined by Richard Smart, the CEO and Registrar of the Travel Industry Council of Ontario, and Dr. Marion Joppe, Professor in the School of Hospitality, Food and Tourism Management at Guelph University. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Okay. Well, Richard Smart, let's start with you. One of the things that I have been wondering about while all these requirements are a little confusing and up in the air is uh, how much responsibility do the airlines have? I mean, they've been letting people book all kinds of flights. And if somebody, you know, gets to the gate and finds, oh, guess what? You're not getting on that plane. Um, What is the responsibility there? Well, uh, it's a great question, Libby. Of course, uh, TICO is is Ontario's travel regulator. Uh, We we provide uh, consumer protection to all uh, all, all consumers, all travelers who are booking with travel agents and their, and their websites in the province of Ontario. And, of course, airlines are federally regulated. Um, but we know that through some of the recent uh, programs that the federal government has had with the airlines, Air Canada uh, and Air Transat, that they put some strict requirements around the uh, government assistance that's been provided. And we've seen as a result of that, the, the airlines are providing a lot more flexibility, particularly when it comes to, to refunds. Uh, so if someone is uh, denied uh, passage on the, on the airline, they at least have the comfort, uh, unlike it was before, that, that there is a, a refund at the, uh, at, at the end, of the, end, end of the tunnel. Um, but I think airlines uh, in, in general are, like, a, like all travel operators, has just been this, this void uh, of travel over the last 15 months. And the the, the pent-up demand uh, for, for travel is there, and, and I think if uh, travelers have met their um, their uh, their uh, eligibility requirements for travel, uh, airlines are not looking to turn uh, turn passengers away. Uh, but in the event that they do, uh, in Ontario, we've got travel uh, legislation in place where the consumer, if they book through a, um, a TCO travel uh, travel agent agency or a website, there are certain protections available to them. Uh, yeah, I just want to um, I just want to get back to one of the things that that you said. I mean, my understanding is that the airlines now will refund if if they have canceled a flight because of the pandemic. But um, you're saying that if somebody gets to the gate and they're denied boarding for whatever reason, that they can still get a refund? If if in Ontario, if a, if a consumer has booked their air ticket through an Ontario retailer and, and the travel services uh, haven't been provided, um, most of the airlines um, are providing flexible um, policies around refunds. And certainly if they've canceled the, the flight, they'll provide the refund. Um, the cancellation policies, they differ, differ by airline if the consumer uh, cancels their flight. Um, then they're going to be subject to the to the uh, to the terms and conditions at, at the at the time of booking. But I, I, I think most travel operators, including the airlines, are looking to be as flexible as possible um, to to you know to get passengers on board and, and, and complete the travel. Okay, yeah, uh, that's interesting and and very good to know, um, Doctor Joffe. Mm-hmm. And another. Interesting thing with all of this, uh, speaking of travel agents, is that I've talked to travel agents and they're, you know, not entirely sure. Some, it's not clear if other countries will accept fully vaccinated travelers. How, how do you see this period? Well, it's very confusing uh, because every country seems to have its own rules. And even in the European Union, where they're trying to coordinate between the countries, it's not really happening, and countries have sort of their own sub-rules almost, uh, which makes it very, very difficult for people. And, and these rules can also change on a dime. Uh, just think about what happened for the second time with the UK and, and people coming back from Spain, and suddenly they were told they have to quarantine, and everybody in a mad rush tried to get back home to, to the UK before that uh, took effect. So the rules are still very, very flexible from a government's perspective, and they can impose them at a moment's notice. 
Well, that's true, Richard Smart. And you're basically saying that that uh, your industry obviously wants to get back and wants to encourage people who are, you know, desperate to travel to give it a shot anyway. Yeah. And, and you know, Dr. Joppy is, is absolutely right, Libby. And this is at the heart of why Tico is here in the province. It's, it's about consumer protection. There's no there's no cost for uh, for it. And, and we are, our mantra is always to encourage uh, travelers, regardless of the province, but you know we're, we're talking here in Ontario, to, to book their travel with a travel professional, a travel, a travel expert who's gone through the training, knows the markets in which the consumers are traveling to. And yes, it's a very fluid and, and changing environment. But who better than a travel professional? Who's done the research? Who's on top of the, the 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 local conditions and the local rules? And albeit they are they are fluid and they are changing, that is their that's their expertise. That's what the, a travel professional is there for. And so our our message to consumers is why 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 go it alone? Why not book with a a travel advisor, travel professional through a registered travel agency that's gone through all the all the training and all the requirements that's required under the legislation. And if something does go wrong, there's nothing worse um, being by yourself in a situation where something's gone askew. Uh, you, you've always got the peace of mind and security to, to, to work with your travel uh, agent or travel advisor to try to work out um, you know, a solution to whatever the, the, the problem is. Do you have any sense of how many travel professionals may have left the industry in the midst of all of this, uh, given that uh, they haven't really been able to work? Uh, it's... It, it, you know, there's there's no sugarcoating it. it, it it's been devastating. Uh, pre-pandemic, we had approximately 2,400 travel agencies in the province of Ontario, probably in the neighborhood of 20 to 30,000 individual travel agents. Um, and in the course of the last 15 months, we've seen a, a decline of about 10 percent. Um, and this is this is during a period of time when there's been uh, massive amounts of government assistance and funding and. And agencies have uh, laid off or furloughed employees. And despite all of that, we've seen about a 10% decline. Um, and, and our fear is we're about consumer protection, but equally we want to see a viable industry. And our fear is as some of these government programs wane off over the next few months, um, we could in fact see that attrition rate increase. Uh, Dr. Joppa, um what about the rest of the industry? You've got all the ancillary jobs, the hospitality, hotels, restaurants. Uh, what do you see happening there? Oh, it's uh, it's very similar. I mean, it's been really devastating for so many of these businesses, and they're hanging on because of government support. But once that support runs out, and they're losing pretty much a second summer, um, with all the restrictions still being in place in, in many parts of the country, many of them are not going to survive. And I think we will see a whole slew of bankruptcies uh, come come the fall and winter. We had a number from Richard. He said 10%. Uh, does that sound about right for the rest of the industry? Uh, well, actually, the, the fear is that it'll be higher. Um, there are, you know, the, the majority of the businesses in uh, hospitality and tourism tend to be micro and small businesses, um, and they just simply haven't got the the financial backing that is required for such an extended period of next to no revenues. Let's take a call from Isa in Woodbridge. Hello, Isa. Hi, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. I just have some questions regarding um, our our booking. Uh, as of July the 14th, we are going to take a trip. We are daring. Um, <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah, but we're both vaccinated, both my husband and I. Okay, we have both um, vaccinations. And we were just wondering, I know that we have to take a COVID test 48 hours prior to the departure. After uh, that, when we get to the airport, there's uh, the flight is eight and a half hours, and there's a six-hour difference when we arrive in Rome. What do we do there? Do we need to be retested again? Well, that's one of the issues. It's very hard to to meet that requirement. There are some companies that are offering uh, testing. Um, 
so uh, so you get you you have to have your test and get your result in the correct time frame. And uh, yeah, but for here it has to be forty eight hours prior to departure. But what I'm questioning is when we get to our destination. Right. No. 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 When the, when you're leaving. Yeah. The test you have to take is the requirements of the country you're landing in. When you're coming home, that's Canada's requirements. So you oh, have okay. to take two sets of tests. Okay. And um, uh, do either of you have any insight on what Italy's like the, uh, as Dr. You, Joppa pointed out, it's different well, you know for, in what? every country. I- I have been trying to look up information. Good luck. It's so confusing, and it changes on a daily basis. Well, exactly. Uh, uh, Richard Smart or Dr. Joppe, do you have anything <laughs> to add to that? Well, uh, it, it is exactly that. You know, each country makes its own rules, and uh, so many countries ask you to have a um, vaccine or, or negative test, I should say, uh, prior to boarding the plane, and some, including Canada, require it on arrival as well. So you actually have two within a span of, uh, you know, two or three days. Um, so, yeah, every country makes its own rules, and they change constantly. It's part of the risk you're taking these days with going abroad. Oh, for goodness sakes. And also another question, why does it cost $200 plus for each COVID test, uh, because for that's what the market us. will bear. Those are private companies doing it. Is is oh, okay? I was wondering, um, is it a private company? Is it the government? No, I it's not. Sure. The, what the government isn't going to pay for your test, so you can take a holiday in Italy. No, I, I understand <laughs> that, right. But- but I feel it's kind of exaggerated at two hundred dollar person. <laughs> well, well you that. you can there there are some places that uh, do it a little cheaper, you know, uh-huh. maybe fifty bucks less. Uh, you got to do your homework, and uh, that's the price of traveling these days. Isa, I hope Bye. that helps, and have a great trip. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. And and Libby, if I could just add uh, for Isa's benefit and for any other um, uh, traveler that is thinking of uh, traveling over the next uh, few months. Uh, there is a, an app that the federal government has called uh, Canada Arrive, and it's very important, it's a requirement, in fact, that uh, travelers um, register on that site and, and uh, upload their documentation that supports the fact that they've had the two vaccinations in order to qualify for the eligibility requirements coming back in. So right, but it, they've, asked, they've asked people to wait till July the 5th when they have the latest version of the app before doing that. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, we're basically out of time on this. I'm going to give the last word to Dr. Joppa. <laughs> I just, for your listeners, I just wanted to make sure that even though everybody talks about July 5th, it actually doesn't kick in until July 6th because a minute to midnight, I'm sorry, that's, that may still be technically July 5th, but it means the, the rules change July 6th. Okay. Good point. Okay, everybody. Thank you so much, Dr. Marion Joppa and Richard Smart. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We're taking another break. When we come back, uh, the city is clearing the big encampment in Trinity Bellwoods Park, which is uh, right here in our neighborhood. Uh, uh, Some people are complaining. A lot of people are very relieved that that is happening. Uh, We'll talk to Brad Ross when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The city is clearing out a long-standing encampment at Trinity Bellwoods Park. It's a popular park here in our Liberty Village neighborhood. Residents of this encampment were told they must vacate. and They're given time to pack their belongings. And it comes uh, after trespass notices were issued 10 days ago. Uh, the residents say they want to stay because the city-run shelters are unsafe. City says the encampments are unsafe, and given that we had one down the street here, I can attest to that. And it's a relief for people in the neighborhood who feel they've been under siege, both by the encampment residents and uh, 
other troublemakers. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Brad Ross, Toronto's Chief Communications Officer. Hi, Brad. Hi, good afternoon, Libby. So uh, why now, finally, after all this time? Well, as, as you noted off the top, uh, we did uh, place notices, uh, trespass notices, uh, 10 days ago at the park. Uh, we have been engaging, in fact, with, with uh, folks in encampments across the city since the start of the pandemic some 20,000 times and encouraging people to come inside. Um, you know, more than 1,700 people have accepted those referrals, uh, but there still remain people uh, in those encampments. And, and frankly, with uh, vaccine efforts underway now and, and more than 11,000 people, both homeless people as well as shelter workers having been vaccinated, zero outbreaks in the shelters, uh, hotel programs available. Uh, it is safe to come inside with respect to COVID-19. Uh, and, uh, and and parks, in the end, uh, Libby, do need to be safe and accessible uh, and available to, to all residents of the city. Every uh, inch of those parks uh, belong to all of the people of Toronto. And, um, and, 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 and frankly, you cannot uh, camp in a, in a park. I mean, that's, uh, that's a city bylaw. It is illegal. Uh, the courts uh, agreed and sided with the city last fall on this point, um, and we have continued to engage with people uh, living in those encampments um, to, to come inside, and, and the point comes where we have to now enforce uh, those notices. Um, it seems to me, and uh, I think most people have sympathy for people who are living with homelessness and, and, and a lot of other problems that go along with that. But mm-hmm. it seems to be, frankly, quite political. I mean, political in the sense that the people in the encampments, uh, it, it's a political issue. They think they should be allowed to be there. Right. Well, certainly um, their advocates, uh, uh, you know, uh, do uh, do advocate on their behalf and and do politicize it. I suppose that that would be true. Um, the the fact remains, though, that um, and this isn't unique to Toronto, of course. That 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 people do choose to live outside, and you know, those are those are choices people make. We're not forcing people into encampments. What we're saying, though, is that you know, the solution again isn't a shelter uh, or a hotel program. It is housing. And so coming inside allows people then to you know, get those, uh, those services they need, like, um, like, like meals and laundry and medical supports and social supports and access to a housing worker so that they can then be housed, not be in the shelter system, not be living in a park. A park is no place for anybody to be living, uh, especially in, in a city as wealthy as ours and, and in a city with the climate that we have. So uh, we want to house people. Uh, we we have uh, successfully uh, housed uh, more than 5,500 people from the shelter system since the start of the pandemic, and uh, and we will continue to to work hard to do that. Done so long before the pandemic, and will do so long afterwards. Um, so so housing is 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 really the solution. Um, uh, is the only solution to homelessness. Uh, living in a park is not a solution. Uh, people do not have a right to camp and erect structures and tents and uh, makeshift shanties uh, inside city parks. Uh, there's a, a number of safety issues, as, as I think you know. Fires, yeah. Fires, uh, gasoline cans and propane and other debris that are combustible, uh, needles, and uh, and unfortunately criminality as well. Not not by people who are living uh, with homelessness, but by people who come into the encampment and take advantage of those individuals. So um, there comes a point where the city then needs to say, nope, enough, uh, we need to clear this uh, this park. There is space inside for you. Um, it is there uh, if you wish to avail yourselves of it. If you don't, that's fine, but you cannot stay in a park. Uh, there are other problems, particularly at Trinity Bellwoods. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe it's related that, you know, there's an encampment here so people feel, you know, free to do whatever, but it's a big 
party scene and residents in the neighborhood are frankly besieged and they talk about rowdy people at all mm-hmm. hours actually urinating on their properties saying, oh, it's yeah. too far to walk to the Johnny on the spots. Now, what is the city going to do about that? I mean, you know, yeah. if, if you, uh, what are you going to send a bylaw officer and, and give well, them a ticket or what? Well, what, you know, so Trinity Bellwoods Park uh, is a destination park, and it has been long before the pandemic began. Uh, it is a, you know, a downtown uh, a park where, you know, there are a lot of people who live in condominiums and, and the like around, uh, around, uh, um, uh, around Liberty Village who don't have access to a lot of green space. So it is a destination park. It always has been a bit of a party park, if you will. Um, and then, of course, with the pandemic uh, and everything closing, so, you know, patios and bars and restaurants were closed. And so it became even more of a destination. Now, thankfully, with uh, patios at least having reopened, uh, we're hopeful that, that people will, uh, will you know, curb their enthusiasm, if you will, at Trinity Bellwoods and, uh, and go to a patio and, and you know, and, and, and buy uh, there legally and use their facilities and not our neighbors. Um, we have uh, put a lot of uh, extra garbage uh, cans throughout Trinity Bellwoods Park, as well as uh, porta potties. Uh, there is zero um, uh, zero acceptance uh, for anybody urinating or otherwise on on you know on, on somebody's lawn or in their in their laneway. It's just completely unacceptable. Um, yeah, but so but to stop it, to... I think you're going to have to do more than than you know uh, do the nice things. <laughs> So, I mean, that's a separate, a separate and apart from the, the encampment, of course. And, and we yeah. have bylaw officers who attend that park and police who have been attending that park and DJs who've been setting up, uh, you know, parties and amplification have been charged. People continue to be charged with, uh, with various charges related to, uh, the reopening Ontario Act and the like and, and alcohol infractions. So, um, that is, that is something that we absolutely uh, continue to uh, to address and, and work with the neighbors to to understand and because uh, we fully do um, their concerns and, and as I say uh, we're hopeful that you know with 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 things starting to reopen that we'll see less of that kind of egregious behavior uh, and uh, and but recognize that Trinity Bellwoods Park is a is a destination park. It has been before the pandemic and will likely continue to be uh, afterwards because it is a large, beautiful park uh, in the downtown court where a lot of people who live in condominiums just uh, need that green space. Uh, well, exactly. They need that green space and they don't want people, you know, uh, frankly, just before we go, uh, an encampment down the street from us here was mm-hmm. uh, cleared a few weeks ago. And for the first time in forever, I have seen mothers and children there good well yeah that's the you know it is so parks are for everybody including the people who are experiencing homelessness they just can't set up tents and in camps in the parks but the parks need to be safe and accessible for everybody we have summer programs camps and the like for for uh, for, for for children uh, they need to be able to, and parents and caregivers need to be able to send their, their children to those parks uh, under our care, knowing that they will be safe. And uh, and that's our goal uh, for all the encampments, uh, A, that the people in them are safe and have access to the supports they need, and B, that uh, every resident of the city can access those parks safely. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap things up. Brad Ross, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Libby. Thank you. Okay. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.